Welcome to Friends in Fiction, five best-selling authors, endless stories. Friends in Fiction is a podcast with five best-selling novelists whose common love of reading, writing, and independent bookstores bound them together with chats, author interviews, and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing. These friends discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Best-selling novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, Patty Callahan Henry, and Mary Alice Monroe are five longtime friends with more than 80 published books to their credit. At the start of the pandemic, they got together for a virtual happy hour to talk about their books, their favorite bookstores, writing, reading, and publishing in this new uncharted territory. They're still talking, and they've added fascinating discussions with other best-selling novelists. So join them live on their Friends and Fiction Facebook group page every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, or listen and view later at your leisure. Welcome to Friends and Fiction. Hello to everybody. Yes, I'm Mary Alice Monroe, and my upcoming novel is The Summer of Lost and Found, coming May. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews, and my next novel is a newcomer coming May 4th, 2021. Hi, I'm Kristen Harmel. My upcoming novel is The Forest of Vanishing Stars, coming July 6th. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey, and my upcoming book is Under the Southern Sky, releasing April 20th. And tonight we are so delighted to welcome no, you. No, no, no. <laughs> Oh, my favorite, Patty. <laughs> Stop! <laughs> Tonight we're four friends and one enemy. <laughs> All right, Patty. Oh, I'm Patty and Henry, and my newest novel coming March 9th is Five and Savannah. Hooray. And all five of us are delighted to welcome you. the wonderful author that we all love, Sue Monk Kidd. Sue was raised in a small town in Georgia, and that inspired the setting for Sue's major debut novel, The Secret Life of Bees. It was a literary phenomenon, spending more than two and a half years on the New York Times bestseller list. It has sold more than eight and a half million copies worldwide. It won numerous awards and has taught many classrooms from middle school to college. Her book was turned into an award-winning, wonderful, really wonderful major motion picture, The Secret Life of Bees, and I don't know if you know this, a musical, and it's been translated into 36 languages. Her second novel, The Mermaid Chair, and her third novel, The Invention of Wings, we're both number one New York Times bestsellers. Suman Kidd is also the author of several acclaimed spiritual essays, meditations, and inspirational stories and memoirs, including Traveling with Pomegranates, which was written with her daughter, Anne Kidd Taylor, about her journey through Greece, Turkey, and France, a trip that I promised myself that someday I'm going to take with my two daughters. If you'd like to sign up for Sue Monk Kid's newsletter with lots of important information, go to suemonkid.com. 
I've known Sue since before The Secret Life of Bees was published, and that was back in 2002. And what a whirlwind her life has been since then. She, we miss her terribly in Charleston. She's moved now to North Carolina, where she lives with her daughter and her husband, Sandy. So without further ado, welcome, Sue Monkid. Hey, Sue. Yay. Hello. Hi. We're so glad you're here. We we are delighted. We've been waiting for this day. And let me get a little housekeeping done first, and then we'll start asking you questions. Our highlighted bookstore for this week is a favorite of Sue Monk Kids and mine. It's called Buxton Books in Charleston, South Carolina. Buxton has become the heart of the literary community in Charleston, and the story of its owners, Julian and Polly, is a love story of two individuals and their love of books. Julian is a writer, and Polly's dream was to own a bookstore. They got married, and their dreams came true. You can feel the love when you enter Buxton Books on King Street, which is right next door to the beautiful Charleston Library Society. So do visit Buxton Books and support a local independent bookstore, Polly and Julian, who never fail to go the extra mile for their clients. You can receive 10% off the Book of Longings and all Sue's books and all the books of friends and fiction authors using the code Friends and Fiction. The link can be found on our Friends and Fiction book page. So don't worry about it, it's all there. And good news. Polly said that at Buxton Books, they have signed copies of all Sue's books with book plates. So that makes it a very special gift for this holiday season or perhaps for yourself. Okay, that's housekeeping. Now for a chat. Hello, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Hi. Thanks. Hi. Happy Thanksgiving. Hi. Well, this year we want to go over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house, but we are stuck in the middle of a pandemic, so we can't. <laughs> so in my house, it's going to be very quiet, just my husband and me and a big old turkey and Macy's parade, which Kathy, you and I were talking about that earlier. There is going to be a Macy's Day parade. Oh, yes, but it's not going to be on a parade like everything else been affected by this pandemic. They're going to have the performances in Herald Square. So like everyone else, New Yorkers have to watch it on TV. So that's what I'm doing. Sue, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Uh, some cooking and cleaning up afterward, I'm sure. <laughs> we're we're going to have a small gathering of my daughter, my son-in-law, and my grandson, and my husband, and um, lots of food as usual. <laughs> What's your favorite dish? Um, it's probably the sweet potato souffle. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a good hey. one. Which I like the and cook that. Um, I always get the vegetables, so I don't get a lot of kudos for what I do. <laughs> um, kind of underappreciated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they are. Yep, you can make good vegetables, you try them. Mary Kay, how about you? We're going to have a smaller group than usual. My, um, of course, my husband and I will have dinner here. My daughter and son-in-law and our two grandchildren and my sister-in-law. So um, we're being very careful, very cautious. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, I'm baking pies as we speak. And um, the sweet potato souffle is kind of my favorite, too. Although my daughter, I like parsnips. I do, too. Mm -hmm. My daughter told me nobody else likes them, and every year she throws them out. So, 
I guess I'm not doing them this year. I'll come eat them with you. I love parsnips. We can have those together. So, Christy, what are you doing this year? Um, We actually told the Friends in Fiction book club earlier in the week that a lot of years we can have, I mean, a tremendous number of people at our house because my husband's family and my family and all extensions, like everyone's invited to our house. So we can have a huge group. But of course, this year we're not doing that. We're just having um, my parents who sort of been a part of our COVID team and, um, my husband's sister and her husband and two sons. So we're going to be a teeny tiny little group this year. Um, we'll be outside. Fortunately, it's going to be really pretty. And we have a kid's table and an adult table and we're all spread out. But that sounds um, classic. it should be fun. And speaking of uh, Macy's Day Parade, I saw today that the Rockettes are teaching live dance lessons on Instagram every Wednesday at three. Really? So that's where I'm going to be on Wednesday at three. <laughs> I thought all they did was just kick high kicks. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they have a lot of choreography in there. I was kind of watching yeah, it it's a lot of work. while I was supposed to be editing and was procrastinating. <laughs> <laughs> Patty, how about you? What are you doing? With We're in South Carolina, and, you know, we usually have a group of 14 to 16 to 18, and we're having to pare it down. But we're trying to keep the, the main Thanksgiving traditions, mm-hmm. um, this oyster dish that Pat's mother made every year since I was dating Pat Henry. And so, no, if it's an R month, it's an oyster month. So the oysters Mm -hmm. are fresh. We make an oyster dish, which doesn't sound sound like Thanksgiving, but we've never had one without it. Um, Both my sons are home, but I can't see my daughter daughter and my baby. So it's sad. Mm. And last but not least, Kristen, how about you? Well, so we normally go to my in-laws for Thanksgiving. We're not this year because of the pandemic. Um, So it's just going to be the three of us, me, my husband, Jason, and our four-year-old, Noah. And so as one does when they're entertaining for just their husband and their child, I picked up a 22-pound turkey, um, (laughs) which was an accident. I ordered a 15-pound turkey, and they were out of the smaller one, so they brought me a 22-pound turkey out. But (laughs) just in case you thought we didn't have enough turkey meat, my husband has also chosen this year to experiment with smoking a turkey. So he'll be smoking a turkey breast in addition to my 22-pound. That's great. So we'll basically be eating turkey all the way through next June. That's great. You won't have to do any cooking, Kristen. Ever, ever again. At least we're all having Thanksgiving. And I hope everyone has a good book called The Book of Longings. Andy, if you haven't read it, you will want to after tonight for sure. Sue, can you tell us a little bit about your new novel? Well, this novel, um, well, I'll put it like this. The day that that occurred to me to write this novel, um, I remember sitting back in my chair and thinking, am I really going to write a book in which Jesus gets married? And then I remember something I had um, said many times that women particularly, we all, women particularly, need to do something at least once in our life that takes our own breath away. I love that. And I remember sitting back thinking, okay, this is mine. This is mm. mine. <laughs> So sort of initially take my breath that I would kind of go way, way out on the literary limb with this. But um, I was very compelled to do it. And I never looked back after that. But the novel itself is really not about Jesus getting married, (laughs) although that happens in the book. Um, It's about his wife, Anna. It's her story through and through. 
And I'll just say she has quite an adventure in search of her own longings. It's a beautiful book. And I, I know we all have a lot of questions and please everybody just feel out there listening to you can write your questions in the chat room and we'll get to you eventually. Um, we get to start asking the question, Sue. So we're going to start with Patty. Patty, do you have a question for Sue? Hi, Sue. It's so good to see you. So the first book I read of yours was The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, way before I met you. And it sent me on a journey that I am still on today. I mean, are we ever not on the journey, right? So, but it changed me deeply, that book did. And now comes the Book of Longings, which is at its core, the story of a woman's search for her voice, which I feel like the book, The Dance of the Dissonant Daughter helped give me. And this theme you have of rebellious women is prominent in your fiction. And I don't even know if I would call it rebellious, but this theme of women understanding who they really are at their core, this theme of knowing their value and their worth. And I love when you once said that stories that will empower women and girls is what I do. It's my thing. Can you discuss the importance of telling such kinds of stories and I can't help but notice that the main character is named Anna and your daughter is Anne. <laughs> so talk to us about that. Yeah, I can't explain that too good, I don't think. <laughs> um, yes, empowering women and girls, that is my thing. And, it, and not only that, I mean, there are many things that I have in my fiction. One of them has to do with race. And uh, racial injustice, uh, gender inequality, these things matter deeply to me. And those are two motifs that have reoccurred in my work over and over again, both in my fiction and in my nonfiction. And the only way I can really sort that out of where that is sourced is that it is personal in my history. You know, I came of age in the pre-feminist South and in pre-civil rights South. And those had enormous impacts upon me. I have a, uh, a real sensitivity to injustice right. and social justice always mattered enormously to me. So I think because I had a personal history with this, because I witnessed things that had to do with all of this, that, um, you know, it, it surfaces in my writing. And I do think that often writers write out of, to some to some degree, their personal history. Yeah. Um, so that's probably why the empowering women and girls, and I just care a lot about that. It's It deeply matters to me. Well, I feel like from reading your previous work before Secret Life of Bees and then finding Secret Life of Bees is that it's, it is a thread that has followed through kind of like the red thread in pomegranates and, and all that other nonfiction is understanding the value of who you are. And that, that goes to every single subject you just named. I think too, that um, there is a kind of theme in my work that has to do with authenticity of belonging um, of women belonging to themselves 
you know, in the secret life of bees, um, that had definitely had a um, civil rights backdrop to it and, and dealt with some of that. But it also dealt with Lily, my character, trying to find her home or her place mm-hmm. of belonging and the mother, the great mothering spirit in the world, which I identified as the Black Madonna in this particular story. Yeah. That is a journey that matters. And it's true that in all my books, The Invention of Wings, yeah. The Mermaid Chair, The Book of Longings, these women are searching for their deepest and truest and most authentic yeah. self for their voice, their power. And this is a classic journey for women. And, um, you know, I've met, I tried to write about that journey that I took in the dance of the dissident daughter, Patty. And um, it, it, you know, it's amazing to me that I wrote that book. Gosh, it was published in 1996. Yeah. So, and it's still <laughs> new generations are finding it. They are. Yeah, and really cool. So it, that book actually is a kind of template or prototype for the book of longings. And a lot of those things reemerged in that book. And in fact, there is one or two things that are verbatim right out of my life, like a dream or things that happened to me. I decided to give to to Anna and I've said, and I know I'm not sure if this is a good thing or bad thing, but this book, this novel, the book of longings, is more, oh, I'm going to say it. Uh, it's a little more autobiographical than any novel I've read. Yeah, yeah. That I've written, I, I should say, or read. Yeah. <laughs> or read. <laughs> yeah. Know, my husband, sure. Sandy, um, when he read the manuscript, he, he looked at me. The first thing he said to me, he looked up after the last page and he said, I see a lot of Anna in you. And um, that kind of shocked me. And I thought, oh, dear, you know, but it's true. And what I said to him was, I'll tell you what I think. There's a lot of Anna in a lot of women. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The woman writer writes, writes stories of other women giving them voice. I mean, that's what you do. That's what I do. <laughs> it's your thing, right? <laughs> yeah, we do. We repeat, our, we repeat ourselves in stories. That th- the same thing surfaced. You know, people said to me after this, when The Mermaid Chair came out, which was really a hard novel to write because I had to follow The Secret Life of Bees. Yeah. And, um, you know, someone said to me before The Mermaid Chair, I was in the midst of writing it, and an interviewer uh, from a real big newspaper up there in New York said, <laughs> um, how does it feel to uh, have written your best novel first? <gasps> oh, my gosh. Whoa. It's already yeah. been decided, you know. So oh, wow. I went into a kind of a two-month um remember that perilous peril paralysis <laughs> yeah 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 I had to kind of get past that in order to write my second novel and people said you know it's so different than the secret life of bees and I thought on the outside it's different on the inside it's oh, interesting um it's just a little more sophisticated um journey of a woman not trying to find her home 
out there, but her home is here. Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you for sharing that. That's very personal. So thank you. Uh, Christy, I know you have a question to follow up. I do. Um, This book, Oh my goodness. It was just so incredible in so many ways. I actually like texted all of them when I read the scene where Anna meets Jesus for the first time, which of course is um, at the beginning of the book. And it just took my breath away. It was absolutely beautiful. So this is a really incredible book. And I cannot imagine the research for a novel that took place 2000 years ago. I mean, the details that you include about everyday life, the religion, the history, the culture, it's so meticulous. And then you also brought into the novel a lifetime of of study of the divine feminine throughout history. So can you talk about diving into the immense amount of research on Jesus? And maybe in contrast, what did you find available about the women of that period? Mm-hmm. Well, the research was daunting to say the least. Um, I had no idea what I was getting into. I mean, I had spent I mean, I've taken seminary courses in theology and New Testament background and all kinds of things. And I've been a student of spirituality, just kind of a self-taught reading the classics of Christian history and tradition from my um, background. But I didn't know anything. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's daunting for me to hear. (laughs) Wow. Well, for one thing... um, I decided I would write the book and then I began to create a storyboard for the book, Mm -hmm. creating characters and characters studies and things like that. And then I began to realize just how much I research I had. I thought it would take me maybe a year. It took a year and um, 14 months. I mean, uh, 14 months is what it took. So, 12 years, uh, boy, I'm really can't get it out. <laughs> we I'm don't trying. do math here. Don't okay. There's no math. It's a year and two months. Yeah. Math is not my thing. <laughs> it's none of our things. So we're over here. <laughs> um, so 14 months of research was a long time. Yeah. And um, I just had to read everything I could, not only about the time, the history, the culture, the women, but mostly I focused a lot on the historical Jesus because I needed to get that right. And I made a decision not to write the character of Jesus as divine, but to focus on the humanity of Jesus. So I, I read a lot about that. Um, But the women you ask about, um, well, I read everything I could about the women in the Bible and I read as many um, early documents as I could in the Gnostic gospels and just, I mean, I collected a small library of books. It just, it, it was like eight hours a day of research for for those 14 months. And what I discovered about the women is that not only were they deeply oppressed with their voices and their stories, they don't show up in the Bible very much comparatively speaking to the stories of men. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I think it's 1.1% of all the words spoken in the Bible are by women. Wow. And so we, you know, they just aren't represented in a large way. And we can name some women who, have prominent stories that are told, but for the, but 
relatively speaking, it's very small presence and impact. Um, so there, there was that. And then I discovered when I was researching Egypt, which was the other place I had to research, not just Galilee and Judea, but Egypt, too, at this particular time, the women were much freer, mm-hmm. um, not that they were liberated by any means. Um, there was a journal of, of historical fiction that did a, an interview with me. And they asked me if I could find documentation that of women like Anna in the first century. And there were other people who said to me, well, she's so feminist. She's kind of a proto-feminist. Um, did they really exist? You know, there was no feminism, Sue. And I said, well, of course there wasn't any organized feminism. That actually didn't even exist when my mother was alive, <laughs> right? Um, you know, when she was born, there was no. So I said, you know, I think I know women and I know women's hearts. And I have a feeling that I don't care when they lived, what era it was, women yearned to have their own freedom, their own independence. They wanted what their brothers had. And then there were there were also women who stood out and who could see it and feel it very clearly and deeply. But my point really was that if women, if we can't find those women, it's not because they didn't exist. It's because they weren't recorded. Oh, I love that. I love and that. Point. We just can't find a lot of history written by women um, at, and their stories or about women. Yeah. You know, just interjecting the scrolls that you wrote about at the afterward in the book, those existed or were those, because I remember you talked about some that were later proved forgery. But the ones that you described in the book, were those found? The one I described in the book was an actual doc. I think you're referring to the Thunder Perfect Mind which yes. is an actual um, document that was part of the Nag Hammadi texts that were dug up in Egypt in 1945. Okay. And that document was most surely written by a woman. Most scholars think so. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, it existed. And um, it's, it's beautiful. You ought to look it up and, and read the whole thing. But it made me so happy to just decide that Clearly, Anna wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful. Kristen, I think this is a good segue for your question. Yeah, Sue, um, this book is just beautiful and intricate and so brave. I mean, it's such a brave, amazing thing to take on. I mean, just the scope of it is is enormous. It's so interesting to hear you talk about it. Um, But as you mentioned, this novel really portrays the humanity of Jesus, a son, a brother, a husband, a man, a very real, kind, appealing person. So you encourage the reader to kind of reimagine Jesus in this new, fuller light. So I actually have two questions for you about that. First, why did you set out to create this alternate history of him as a man? You know, just as a as a as a person we can kind of identify with. And second, did that change your relationship with Jesus or the way that you think about him? Hmm, I like that. Um, to go to your first question, um, 
I was, you know, I had to debate about that. And this has been parsed and written about over and over again, the story of Jesus. And I wanted to do something that would bring a new dimension to this story. And I was really interested in the historical Jesus, the man Jesus, because I feel like we have largely lost touch with that. Um, with the humanity of Jesus, that the divinity of Jesus or that title that he would live into later after his death um, was had, had sort of overshadowed all of that. And I was reading some um, texts by uh, Marcus Borg, the late Marcus Borg, who was a scholar of um, the historical Jesus. And he made a distinction between the pre-Easter Jesus and the post-Easter Jesus. Mm. That was very clarifying for me to hear it in those terms. And I decided right then and there, I'm writing about the pre-Easter Jesus. Awesome. And um, that is quite different in many ways, you know, and he made a point that I totally concur with, which is that, um, if we lose touch with the human Jesus, we have lost the the idea or the potential in ourselves so to be more like him. Yeah. And um, so, you know, did it change my relationship to Jesus? Um, I have to say that it probably did. Surprisingly, um, it gave me a new appreciation for the man. Yeah. And I, I have had so many readers write to me and say that they rediscovered Jesus or they found a new interest in Jesus or they fell in love with Jesus again or they now had a crush on Jesus. But yeah, I think it does. I wanted to kind of shake up how we understand or at least ask ourselves certain questions about who is this? But this was not my primary goal. It really wasn't Jesus. I was far more interested in Anna Mm -hmm. and in having this character who could be his partner, who had her own quest, her own longing, her own calling, and how she would um, realize that along with him and even without him. You know, can I go back to the pre-Easter and post-Easter Jesus, which is actually, I'd love for you to explain that a little bit more to those who might not understand that. It's really referring, my understanding is the asceticism of the divine, you know, all, not just Jesus, Mary, the saints, the whole group, you know, it's it's always about the divine and as opposed to the human quality. And I, I always love to read about the lives of the saints and find out what they endured as individuals. But can you describe that a little bit more for our viewers? Well, I'll try. You know, Sue is not much of a theologian, but I will try. So um, the pre-Easter Jesus was this real human being who was born, who lived, who probably was a stone worker or a carpenter or woodworker, a person who um, lived as a, a life as a Jewish man, and he died. Um. 
the post, but his life was so luminous. He, he really was extraordinary in so many ways that his story lived on and on. It was not until um, the third century that the matter was settled that he was divine. You know, there were beliefs that he was divine. There was belief he was human. And the, this council met and they determined, these bishops, that he was both human and divine. And this is how it started. But for the first 200 years after his death, it was largely debated. And it wasn't even until the second century that people began to say, well, I don't think he was married. Up until then, it was kind of assumed he probably was or it wasn't an issue. Um, so there's a lot of interesting um, history to understand how did Jesus, the human, become Jesus, the divine, the Christ. So there's Jesus and there's the Christ. And this became meshed together to create an amazing, you know, religion. Thank you. That, you did a beautiful job <laughs> explaining that. Thank you very much. That was, <laughs> I, I just think a lot of people might not have fully understood what that meant. So thank you. All right. Can, uh, Mary Kay Andrews, you have a question. You know, uh, it's not a theology question. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've written and spoken about the iconography of the Black Madonna and your search for them throughout Europe. And you wrote about the Black Madonna and the secret life of bees. So could you discuss a little bit about how you created the quieter, endearing character of Mary in the Book of Longings and compare and contrast that portrayal with Mary the Black Madonna? Yes, you know, I really have a thing for the Black Madonna. That is also my thing. Mary, um, as as a divine kind of larger than life mythic figure, was intriguing to me. And in the uh, in traveling with pomegranates, this travel mother daughter story that my daughter and I wrote, Anne Taylor, um, we went to visit all these black Madonnas and I was so struck by her grandeur, her imagery and what it stood for and how different it was from the shire white Mary who had a dip and a little bit of a handmaiden look about her. The black Madonnas of Europe were powerful. They gazed right at you cutting with their fist on their on their knees and they had a history that we don't have time to go into which had to do with um well the ancient goddess with a very powerful authoritarian uh, authoritative figure and i just liked her a lot and so I adopted her and I have a painting of the Black Madonna. It's kind of a contemporary painting of her over my desk for the last, gosh, 25 years. Awesome. And I think of her as um, a muse, as an mm -hmm. icon that that radiates the, div the divine feminine spiritual power and compassion and inclusion and justice she stands mm -hmm. for those kinds of things and um i revere those things so when i began to write the book of longings 
this was a whole different Mary, you know, because in the secret life of bees, she was mythic Mary in the book of longing. She's human Mary. Mm -hmm. So we have both sides of her just as we have both sides of this figure, Jesus and the Christ, two sides Mm -hmm. of one person. And she has that too. And I was able to have the fun of writing both sides of Mary. Yeah, that was lovely. I, I, I felt that she was such a good mother-in-law. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wanted her to be. I, I wanted yeah. her to be a good mom. And I felt like she was just a mother who didn't get a lot of credit for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Of, how, how, of ways he turned out. So, you know, I did little things like um, when he said, turn the other cheek, he got that from his mother. Things like that. I love that. Uh-huh. You know, there are so many scenes that we recognize that you put in through the Book of Longings of Jesus's life that came in through different avenues, which was, I won't say anymore, so I don't want to spoil for those who haven't seen it, but it was beautifully done. All right, I'm going to go on a limb with my question. Um, the use, This came because I read your book, but the use of guides in literature is an important vehicle to point to the reader what is important. And while reading the Book of Longings, I thought of Dante's Divine Comedy, his going through hell, which Anna did a little bit too. But in that wonderful book, which I'm sure you've studied a lot, you have Beatrice who pointed out divine wisdom. And then you had, of course, Virgil who pointed out human wisdom and reasoning. And I'm thinking to myself, when I read the Book of Longings, I saw clear guides for Anna's journey. Now, I know who I'm thinking of before I say anything. Think about the book. Did you, first of all, did you know this intentionally when you wrote it? Or can you think of who would be the guides for Anna in the Book of Longings? Mary Alice, you're the only person on earth who has compared that to Dante's comedy. <laughs> well, I <laughs> yeah, no, that never occurred to me. Um, but sometimes, you know, that happens unconsciously too. Of course, it does. In fact, yeah. um, I'm always hearing from readers what I'm doing. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Because we write instinctively. We write from the unconscious. And we have to just trust that and write. But you're right. There is a guide. Um, And I thought of her as Yaltha, her aunt. Yeah. And um, this guide um, is an older woman. It it was not her mother. It was her stand-in mother. I'm always giving people stand-in mothers. I don't know why. (laughs) My mother was great. And, you know, she was the mother of the year and all of that. And has little silver bowls engraved to to prove it. But <laughs> I don't know why I am so hard on moms. Sometimes with my characters, they have to find their mom somewhere else. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's the guide, and she is kind of a midwife. You could say a kind of spiritual midwife for Anna. Um, she blesses her largeness, which is a an important thing in the story is that Anna, um, she has a lot. I said that we all have a largeness in us, as Yalta said, 
And Anna says something like, bless the largeness in me, even when I fear it. Mm-hmm. So finding her largeness, and she had a, a lot of largeness inside of her, and it was motivated through this longing. And she wanted to have a voice in the world more than anything. And I think this is where Sandy was really seeing a lot of connection to me. That's right. Wanted, oh, she wanted to be a writer, a scribe yeah. at the time. And she wanted to tell the lost stories of women. This this is ringing bells with me, too. Uh-huh. And I think that her um, need was she needed to be blessed by a real person and she needed to be guided. And that was her aunt. Yes. And we all kind of need a person like that. You know? Mentor. Yeah. But she also was very protective of her niece of, of Anna. And she really had a lot of how to fulfill her goals on earth, the human side, but her relationship with Jesus was beautiful. It was a marriage. You know, that was what was so great about it. And that, but he advised her more towards the divine, in my mind, the greater. Yeah, Yaltha was very grounded. You know, she was no nonsense. She was very grounded. She was, but she was deep and wise. Um, But the marriage of Jesus and Anna, I really wanted them to have a great, big love. That's what I wanted. I mean, I thought they deserved that. And they're larger than life figures. And so they deserve to have a larger than life marriage. But I also knew it had to be a human marriage. It had to have its conflicts. So it was a real challenge to figure out how to portray the character of Jesus. I mean, the audacity of putting words in his mouth. I would sit there and think, now, what would, what would he say and what would he do? How would he respond like this? And, you know, I'm putting words in his mouth and I'm having him do all these things. And some of them were um, in conflict with her. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to, I had to walk a line between how to portray two extraordinary people, but they can't be perfect. And they have to, like all characters, they have to be flawed. Mm. And, um it isn't easy to portray Jesus as flawed, but no. But I yeah. think where he, where this came probably into um, play, was his need to fulfill his destiny was so deep and profound that it sometimes got in the way of everything else. You cannot fault him for that, really. <laughs> No, no, it was beautifully done. I mean, it was, and the conversations were beautifully done. Now, I just want to keep talking about this for another two hours, but I know we have a couple of questions that we're going to draw from the people who are our audience. So, Mary Kay, could you do the first one, please? Sorry, I had muted myself. Um, Mary Kajan Petalin. Uh, says, where did you get the idea for the character, Anna? And she wants to know if you were raised Catholic. <laughs> um, no, I was not raised Catholic. I was raised Protestant, Southern Baptist. I'm, I did leave that denomination, however, and became an Episcopalian, which I think I'm still on the rolls somewhere. As- <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I have to um, 
say about where did Anna come from? Um, she just surfaced one day when I was reading a piece from National Geographic about a, a, a fragment of a papyrus that described the wife of Jesus. Now, this papyrus was believed to be authentic, but it turned out not to be authentic. It turned out to be a fake. And it's, but it stirred up the academic world for quite some time. And it was vetted no less than Harvard University Theological School vetted it, published a scholarly article about it. And it was Dr. Karen King, who is a chair of the religion department, um, who introduced it to the world. That's how good this fake was. And there were documentaries about it. And there were, um, yeah this article I was reading. Now, when I read it, I got an image in my mind. Um, my imagination just was on fire because I suddenly could see this woman, her and her, and her name came to me to refer back to your question, Mary Alice, about my daughter named Anne and this um, wife of Jesus is Anna. But I could, her name came to me immediately. It was Anna. I could, picture her. She was very compelling to me. And then I, um, I mean, she, she just sprouted the whole thing sprouted story sprouted out of that image. Um, so I think, um, you know, where these images come from, maybe I'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about some writing or something, but I think, um, the story just grew out of that one moment. Mm-hmm. And Christian. Yeah, we, I have a question from Anna Earhart Williams. If you were to write a spin-off about a secondary character from any of your books, which character would you choose? Oh my word. Okay. <laughs> I knew it would catch you <laughs> off guard. <laughs> she got me. Uh, well, you know, I love every one of those characters that I've ever written, even the bad ones, even the bad boys and bad mothers. And all of them. <laughs> because I, uh, so it's hard to say, but it would probably be, um, what I'd probably do is revisit The Secret Life of Bees. Mm. And I'm not sure um, which character I would spin off. Um, wow. Gosh, that's so hard. <laughs> You're going to get so much fan mail now. Oh, saying, my gosh. Which one do it? Please do that. Please do that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, if it was in the Book of Longings, um, I don't know. Maybe Yaltham, maybe Tabitha. Yeah. Mm. How do you pronounce your daughter's name? Yaltham's daughter. No, no. Um, Deodre, um Chaya. Oh, oh Yaltham's daughter. Okay. Yes. I was going to say, you know how to pronounce Anna. Right? <laughs> yeah, I figured that out. No, Kaya, she has another Greek name. Yeah, I pronounced it in my head as Diodoro. Diodoro. But I noticed that the woman who was the reader for the audio, I finally listened to it not long ago, pronounced it completely differently. So I can't even remember how she pronounced it. She'd be interesting to read about. Yeah. She'd yes, she would, actually. That would be a good one. Patty, how about you? So a woman named Janelle Frost Rodenbach 
If I slaughter that, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, she asked if you had, if you, when you were writing this, if you ever feared backlash. I knew it was very likely, but I didn't fear it. Oh, I love that. That's a great answer. I mean, look, I went around the controversy block with the dance of the dissident daughter. I knew about that. And that was 20, oh, 24 years ago that book came out. And I knew that was going to get backlash too. And boom. It ever. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. Um, everything. Talk about courage. I mean, you know, everything from letters, hate mail to um, wow. things said from pulpits to church newsletters to um, boycotts of my lectures, all in the name of Jesus, you know. It's oh, <laughs> gracious. But- yeah, but you was, have to know um, that the good it did way surpassed. Yeah, the bad. and that's my point, really, is that for all of that initial kind of, um, I mean, it was in the big scheme of things, it was minor. But, no, you know, in my world, living in a small town at the time in South Carolina, it was really um, something. Yeah. And I... I had to be as prepared as I was for that. And I thought I was pretty prepared for that right. um, through, you know, seven years of therapy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but when it happened, it did rock my boat a little bit, but yeah. I learned yeah. tremendous amounts from that. Oh, I bet. And I learned how to be fearless. And as I got older, I knew and understood that being grounded in my own soul and in my own voice and in my own authentic desire to write what I needed to write and to express my soul, there was a fearlessness that took shape in that. And um, honestly, I knew this would be controversial in many ways, and yet I needed to write it. I wanted to write it. It was embedded in me to write it, and it did not rock my boat one ripple when it happened. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Good for you. I love that. Good for you. Well, I try to learn from, um, you know, Anna. She's very brave. And, and um, I think we have to cultivate our bravery as women in order to voice ourselves, but particularly as writers, mm-hmm. you know, not to uh, compromise ourselves, but to have a clear, brave and daring voice. And the times Thank you for that. That's Christy. I I know you have a question. I do. Um, The papyrus was an important symbol in the novel. It was the material that carried Anna's words. Also, it was striking to see the symbolism of papyrus that came from Egypt, where the Jews were slaves, returned to Egypt with Anna as a free woman with a voice. Can you talk about that symbolism? And is that papyrus on the cover of the book? You know, I'm not sure what is said on that, or even if anything is said on the papyrus that's on the cover of the book. I have no idea. I but think she means the drawing. The drawing. It oh. isn't papyrus, I guess. It's just, it is papyrus. It is. Oh, the actual, I gotcha. Very basic um, question. Yes, I think so. <laughs> I think it is. Um, very real. Um, you know, I, when I went to Egypt, oh, 
back in 1980. Wow. My mother and I went to Egypt together. So jealous. And I bought this this papyrus making kit, or it was a paper making full of papyrus strips and things. And I came home and I wove it and you had to wet it and you had to do all of these things to it. And I made a sheet of papyrus out of it. And um, I finally inked something onto it eventually, a little story. But I've been fascinated with papyrus. But yeah, what are the things that convey our words how much do we take that to grant for granted and how much do we take for granted the words themselves, Hmm. how powerful they are. Mm -hmm. And in the first century, when one thing I learned is that there was an almost awe inspiring reverence for words and the power they had. Mm -hmm. Um, At one point, Anna describes her words as little ink temples where God can live and inhabit. That's how exquisitely powerful they were for her. And in many ways, they're, they're like that for me. Um, I just believe not only in the power of imagination, but in the power of our words to rewrite the whole world. And maybe that's what we're called to do now, right? Rewrite the world. And so by rewriting that one segment of history, that was my yeah. my small attempt to do that. Well, I have to say that I feel like you've given us a lot, as authors, a lot to think about for tips. And it seems almost strange to say we would love to hear a writing tip from you, <laughs> because I feel like we've gotten quite a bit already. You and I did a retreat together a long time ago at the Sophia Institute, so I know you have no shortage of writing tips for authors. <laughs> a lot of our viewers are. Um, hope are learning to write or our existing authors and yet it's our favorite part too is to hear what the author has to say about writing well i knew that you did that on this um wonderful thing you've created friends thank and you fiction, um from other authors and um so i i tried to think today um you know what writing tip would i say and we've heard so many of them and i know writers have things like You have to read a lot and um, you have to give yourself permission to write badly. So there are all these these tips we've heard a lot and maybe they just go right over our head. I don't know what I wanted to decided I wanted to say was something about imagery. And Mm -hmm. I've already kind of touched on this, so it's going to flow right into things I've already said. But um, I think we have to pay attention as writers to the imagery that streams up from our own unconscious. So if I gave a writing tip, I would say something like write from the inside out. And by that, I mean, whatever images are welling up in you, pay attention to them. You know, the word imagination comes right out of that root word for imagery and that is essentially what imagination is and what creativity largely is i think is um the welling up of images from the unconscious that we make and respond to and they can be sometimes images within us or sometimes we respond to something outside of ourselves an image that has the power to resonate just like an image that floated up from within, say, if we're looking at art, for instance. So 
because imagery is so important, particularly if you're a visual person, and even if you aren't a visual person as a writer, maybe cultivate that. Mm-hmm. Because that's so important to me, I make what I call a collage for every novel I write. Wow. And now collage is just an old fashioned word and I'm probably dating myself terribly. Is there a better word for it now? Um, my daughter said, mother, you should call it a vision board or something. Vision board. Okay. It's, and I've done one. I did one for the secret life of bees and, Essentially, what I do is I come up with my idea, and I call this the Annunciation Image. And it's and you often know this because it's so powerful; it resonates with you, and it can sustain you for the next however long it takes to write this novel. And that Annunciation Image, um, it, it should be something that, like I said earlier, can kind of sprout a story and you play with it because creativity is largely about playing with images. And so then I start collecting images. It, I don't uh, ration, rationalize whether they should be in my collage or not. I just, if I see an image and it kind of pricks my unconscious or my fascination or my curiosity, I put it in the collage. So when I did the Secret Life of Bees um, collage, I was surprised to find that it had a big pink house in it. It had a wall, a wailing wall. It had uh, three African-American women standing together with their arms around each other. It had another one with a very big hat on. I mean, every one of those images, I had no idea what they meant, but when, but, but I loved them. And how did I, how do you connect and make and play with these images? That's what a collage does. It stays up in my study the whole time I'm writing. And those images all turned up in the book. Wow. Same thing for all my other novels. So that's something I do that, um, get, it just kind of honors and evokes and invites imagery I, that comes from within. I think for you, I think for sure, you, there's a number of us who are going to start that tomorrow. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Thank you. That's, that's fresh. And that's, I have not heard that. So that's lovely. Thank you so much, Sue. Yeah. All right. Um, how, final housekeeping. Um, let's see, Patty, can you remind everybody about Buxton Books, please? So our highlighted bookstore of the week, I have to pull myself out of that beautiful Our highlighted bookstore of the week is a favorite of Sumon Kids and of mine and of Mary Alice's right smack in downtown Charleston. It is called Buxton Books. It is owned by Julian and Polly and is a marvelous place. And you can receive 10% off the Book of Longings and all of Sue's books and, of course, our books, Friends and Fiction Books. If you use the code friends and fiction and spell out the word and, and the link will be on our Facebook page. Thank you. And Kristen, you've got some exciting news to share. Yeah, we have an exciting announcement. We are introducing Friends and Fiction Firsts, a brand new exclusive subscription club where you get signed first editions of all five of the Friends and Fiction authors 2021 books as soon as they're released. 
plus a friends in fiction tote bag, plus for the first 200 people to order by December 10th, a small friends in fiction holiday ornament. So we are doing this in partnership with one of our favorite indie bookstores, Oxford Exchange in Tampa. Um, so you'll still be supporting local businesses. And if you're, if you would prefer to pre-order books elsewhere, that's totally fine. We'll have some options for you to get that tote bag also, but this is the only place to get signed first editions for all five of us for our 2021 books in one package subscription. And it would make a great holiday gift. Thank you. I'm just really excited to share this with you. We appreciate your enthusiasm. And more information will be on our Friends in Fiction page. And we have a bonus episode on Sunday. Mary Kay Andrews, tell us about it. Yeah, uh, we're going to have James Beard, award-winning cookbook author, television chef, columnist, and extraordinary entertainer, uh, Natalie Dupree. And she'll be with us Sunday. And I know that you will want to hear her ideas for ways to scale down this year's holiday celebrations. And also just to hear from this amazing, um, legendary Southern cookbook author. So that's Natalie Dupree, and that's Sunday at 5 Eastern time. And my goodness, we're getting getting close to the time. But Christy, I think you had a book recommendation for us. Oh, yeah, just really briefly. Um, I'm so excited that we are going to have Robin Carr as our guest um, coming up next week, right? I believe it's next week. And so I'm reading her Virgin River series right now, which I'm sure many, many of you have read. And it's also um, a hit series on Netflix. So we're going to be talking to her about the books and the show. Um, and it's it's been really cool for me to see you know, the differences between. Um, and so we'll be hearing a little bit more about that. And um, they're great books. So check them out. Thank you. Well, everybody, we're done. We're, we're reaching the end here. We <laughs> hope you enjoyed our conversation with Sue Monkid and Sue Thank you so much for joining us and enlightening us about the book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to all of you. I just love that you created this. And thank thank all of you who tuned in and listened to all of this. I appreciate it so much. We have one last question from Bethany Hebeler, who said, of all your books, which of your books should I begin with? Oh, she should ask us. (laughs) (laughs) so what would you recommend for a new reader the new this one the book of longings or what do you suggest well let's see i I, i'm terrible at this but i would say maybe start with the book of longings and if not go to the beginning and work your way through (laughs) the secret life of bees that was the first one Yes. Thank you. Well, you've all read out there. If you have the book of longings, you'll want to dive deeper into Sue's nonfiction books as well. And all Sue's books are at Buxton Books. And also, if you'd like to know more about Sue, and please subscribe to her newsletter at www.suemonkid.com backslash newsletter. And um, I'm sure there's a lot of very wonderful information there. And so thanks to all of you for joining us. And please join join us on Sunday with Natalie Dupree. And we at Friends in Fiction have created a YouTube channel. And if all goes as planned beginning next week, we will also be broadcasting to both the Facebook group and YouTube. So stay tuned for more information. And that is a wrap of an, of an episode that we've been very excited about. I know. We're so yeah, happy. Thank you so much. It was so happy Thanksgiving. Yes, happy Thanksgiving. Give Sandy our best. Too. And Anne, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Bye.
Wow, um, she's amazing. I know. I, I hated to even get to announcements or anything. I just wanted to continue the conversation. Yeah, she was wonderful. She was great. Yeah. 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 I mean, I wonder, the question I wanted to ask but didn't was, what does it feel like to write a new American classic? No kidding, yeah. right? There aren't right. that many, you know, there aren't yeah. many um, contemporary novels uh, that become American classics. I can remember when my son was in high school and he brought home his um, literature syllabus for what they were going to read. And, you know, it was it was all stuff by dead white guys. Yeah. Yeah. I remember asking his English teacher, why don't you guys look at something? Why don't you look at contemporary literature like The Secret Life of Bees? And I think that book has. It has become that. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's like, um, if you think about it, um, To Kill a Mockingbird is another great class. But it's 60 years old. Right. At least, right? Mm -hmm. And so, the Secret Life of Bees. It's definitely a classic. Yeah, I think it's sort of, you know, she was walking in the footsteps of giants and, and yeah. did an amazing job. And this book, I think this book, The Book of Longings, is going to be a landmark as well because of the subject matter, the first mm-hmm. person to actually approach this subject matter yeah. and to do it so well. Yeah. I, it, I, I told Patty this already, but I just was, you know, thinking about writing something historical and I thought, oh my gosh, it feels like such a huge responsibility to take this real person that's lived Mm -hmm. on the planet and give them a voice and you hope it's right, but you don't really know. And I read this book and I was like, I mean, I was overwhelmed by what I was doing. Like, oh oh my God. I know. Speaking of God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. though i mean what a yeah. what a brave beautiful daring career that yeah. and you feel like she's just getting started almost yeah. you know what i mean I isn't mean, that great yeah what are you doing yeah. you've written your best book i thought whoa do you know what's really interesting that um I, this made me think of um i thought it was really interesting that you know jt ellison last week and then sue this week and this was something i'm kind of exploring in my edits right now. And I was like, is this realistic? But the idea that someone that you really admire can tell you something about yourself that is so damaging that it actually changes the trajectory of your life in some way. And she didn't let it ultimately, and neither did JT, but it throws them off their course. And I think we've all had those moments where, and sometimes when you when you think about it or you say it, it seems like maybe it's not realistic, but it's so interesting to me just to have heard those stories about you know, the things that people say to us really do change the way we think about ourselves. Yeah, I think that have impact. People don't realize um, the casual cruelty that they inflict. And of course, it's it's more prevalent now with social media. But I mean, 30 years ago, my managing editor, when I worked at the newspaper in Atlanta, told me, you're not a writer, you'll never be a writer. Yeah. And I can remember weeping all the way home and then just saying to myself, you don't get to, you don't get to define me. Tell me. You don't get to do that. I get to define me. And if I fail, it's on me. Yeah. Lean on you. You don't get to say that to me. Well, I think that for me was one of the reasons why I was so interested that she said, I write for 
women and girls. And I think what she's really saying is to give them voice. Yeah. No one, no one, no one puts you down. No one puts baby in a corner. You know, yeah. it's, it's, you know, we have, a, we have our right to our voice. And she didn't point out, but I thought it was so interesting that in that period in time in history, in the, the first 2000 years, 50%, 50% of women died in childbirth. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about, it's no accident that there were no female apostles, right? Yeah. Well, I was stunned when she said um, that women only speak 1.1% of the time in the Bible. I mean, they talk, talking. And I guess she's talking about the words that come out of their mouth. And I just was kind of speechless, I guess, like yeah. the people in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, too, that, that this idea of being afraid or knowing you're going to get backlash and doing it anyway. Because usually if I know I'm going to get backlash, I definitely take a step back. You know, sometimes the backlash comes and we didn't know it was coming. Right. But um, to know you're going to get it and then do it anyway is really powerful. Definition of courage. I spend a lot of time avoiding backlash. A lot of energy avoiding backlash. 100%. All right, ladies, I'm going to go eat my dinner that my husband. Well, let me just say happy Thanksgiving. Happy Turkey Day. I want to be Sunday night. Happy. Okay. I'll show. You've been listening to the Friends and Fiction Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Friends and Fiction Podcast wherever you listen. And if you're enjoying it, leave a review. You can find the Friends and Fiction authors at www.friendsandfiction.com, as well as on the Facebook group page, Friends and Fiction. Come back soon, okay? There are still lots of books, writing tips, interviews, publishing news, and bookstores to chat about. Goodbye. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.